Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpere, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Joshua Eiler, who is the author of How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching, new from West Virginia University Press. Josh, welcome. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Uh, So if we could, why don't we start out, tell everybody a little bit about who you are and how you came to this particular book. Sure, absolutely. Um, Well, I am currently the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence and an adjunct associate professor of humanities here at Rice University. Um, The teaching center started in 2012 and I came on board shortly thereafter um, to help start some of the programming. Um, Before that, I was at George Mason University in Northern Virginia, where I was associate director of a similar center. Um, So uh, the book comes out of my work with uh, with these teaching and learning centers. Prior uh, prior to moving into uh, into that field, I was a ten uh, had been approved for tenure um, as a medieval studies professor uh, in uh, uh, at a school in Georgia. Um, So the the. When I first began working in teaching and learning centers, these teaching initiatives writ large, um, I was talking to a lot of faculty, observing a lot of faculty, doing a lot of reading about different teaching strategies in a whole host of disciplines. And what I discovered was that there's a lot of information about what works uh, and uh, also a lot out there about how it works. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole canon of evidence-based teaching practices and, um, you know, a long list of handbooks that will help you implement those in the classroom. But those weren't addressing all of my questions. I had a lot of questions about why certain teaching strategies worked well and others didn't. And it was really trying to seek answers to that question that led me to this book and that led me to areas of uh, research and, and disciplines that um, I, that I, I didn't normally uh, look at and and um, those like developmental psychology, cognitive neuroscience, uh, biological anthropology, evolutionary biology uh, that uh, often deal in significant ways with how people learn, but don't necessarily talk to each other very much about that question. And so uh, my uh, my goal for the book in, in trying to answer this why question was to synthesize those areas and apply it to our practice as teachers. So let's let's see if in the in the time we've got together we can't we can't make a little bit of of, of sense of all of that and sure. introduce folks to literature they may not be familiar with. I know a lot of the stuff in the sort of the physical and the developmental sciences I've not come across too terribly much. Um, you you organize the books in sort of five uh, uh, main chapters mm-hmm. that I sort of think of as the features of the learning process that you've honed in on: uh, curiosity, sociality, emotion, authenticity 
and failure. So if we can, why don't we simply sort of walk through those, uh, maybe not so simply, uh, walk <laughs> through each of those in turn and maybe tell us a little bit about, about how and why you think each of them matters in perhaps sort of biological or evolutionary turn, terms, uh, and then sort of, of, of find your way into maybe talking about how uh, in each of those we can use, if we start by talking about curiosity, right, what do we know about how, how curiosity affects how we learn, and then what can we as instructors do to actually implement that in the classroom? So let's, let's talk a little bit about curiosity. Sure, definitely. Um, good. Uh, and I, I do want to say that, uh, you know, as someone in the humanities, uh, it's, it may not appeal or appear at, at first blush uh, uh, to make sense that I would write a book about science. Um, but, I, you know, it took me about five years to write the book. I spent a long time becoming familiar with these different areas, had colleagues here at Rice help me when I had questions. And so it was really important to me that um, – that those researchers working in this field would find what I was saying credible. They didn't have to agree necessarily, but I did want them to find it credible. And curiosity is one of the prime examples of a concept that has been dealt with in great detail by many scientists from a variety of disciplines. Uh, and so navigating those waters, I think, in the first chapter uh, serves as a kind of um, foundation for what I tried to do in the rest of the book. Um, so the from... Uh, from a biological kind of standpoint, um, it, it becomes really clear if you look at the development of the human species that curiosity was an absolute uh, building block from the very start for how we learn new things, how our brains process new information, and, uh, and ultimately uh, the evolution of our brains itself. It was a, a kind of a key factor in that. Um, now, the nature of, of the role it played is, is debated, but most people will agree that it, it had a kind of uh, prime role in that. And so um, th simply it's, it's kind of genesis as uh, this kind of uh, intimately uh, connected uh, part of our learning process from the very beginning makes it a really important uh, thing to be thinking about in our own teaching. But it's important that we, and I try to do this in each of the chapters, to move from the, the theory, the science, to uh, to practicality. And so I, I quickly transition kind of from looking at the biology to looking at where we see curiosity most present in the world, and that is with young children. Uh, and we learn two things from watching the curiosity of young children. Um, I tell a story in there about watching my daughter uh, when she was a baby explore the world for the first time. And so we, one thing that we learned is that curiosity is an all-encompassing kind of visceral approach to the world, it is not just a. It's not just a, kind of a, a cool thing to have going on. It's an absolute necessity. So it's it's a kind of a driving force for the way children seek out information about the world. Um, so you combine that with the fact that uh, the other thing that we really learn about curiosity when we observe children is that the question, asking questions, uh, the question becomes the unit of curiosity, the, the, the sort of mechanism by which children express this curiosity. Um, you combine these two things together and you, we really do start to learn a lot about the teaching and learning process. And, you know, I could go on for probably hours, much too long for this podcast about children's <laughs> questions, uh, but... Uh, in, 
in the sense then what uh, after after uh, doing some of the research there, what I was most interested in was okay. Well, what happens to this? How can we? Uh, where do, where does this curiosity go? How can we uh, kind of tap back into it uh, as a tool for student learning in our college courses? And so uh, it, it's interesting to see um, some of the education researchers looking at. Uh, children's curiosity, what happens to it when they enter the schooling system. Uh, and it, the, the the sad spoiler alert about that is that some of it fades into the background as children learn <laughs> uh, what's expected of them, how to play the education game. So that when we meet them in college, uh, they've had a, a whole schooling career of, of learning to um, do what is necessary to get the credentials to move to the next step to meet the standard rather than uh, exercising an intellectual curiosity. So knowing that, then we have to, we can use the scientific research to say, okay, well, let's put all this together then and try and reach back and, and sort of tap back into that curiosity, bring it to the surface again. Um, and, uh, some key ways that we can do that is to really focus on that that unit of curiosity again, that driver of children's curiosity, which is questions. Uh, a lot of the work on what we can do with curiosity in the classroom really uh, comes back to how can we build courses and curricula around inquiry and questions. Um, and so some of that can be really well-run discussions, uh, really well-designed discussion questions. Some of it can be assignments and activities that help students to generate really good questions. I actually personally think, you know, one of the uh, the goals of a college education is to really get the tools to learn how to ask uh, great questions. Um, some of it can be undergraduate research. Some of it can be constructivist teaching where we're helping students to build the knowledge for themselves. But that's, if we're really to use curiosity as a tool and to access what we know about human curiosity, we have to we have to focus on the asking of questions and uh, center on ways that we can help students uh, build the, the the skills to ask and answer questions. Can you can you offer an example of of an instructor who you've seen sort of doing that really well? Sure. Yes. Um, I. I use a couple examples in the book, but so uh, there's an instructor here at Rice named Dennis Houston, who uh, is really, uh, he actually just retired last year, but um, was, is amazing at leading discussions. And uh, he, he, I think, serves as a good example of what we know uh, in terms of designing the best discussions, which is moving from closed-ended questions to open-ended questions. So closed-ended questions, um, who, uh, what was the name of the guy who wore the red shirt on page 42, those kinds of questions, uh, can be a good warm-up, but they quickly uh, lead to roadblocks if you want an effective discussion. So moving to more open-ended questions, um, the kinds that students, uh, uh, kinds of questions that students can bring multiple lens, uh, lenses, multiple modes of inquiry to uh, to that question. So he, um, he will ask really, um, really uh, kind of broad, open, yet analytical questions about Shakespeare. I saw, I observed him uh, teaching a, a King Lear court uh, class session. Um, and then he will kind of, uh, he will call on someone to respond and then he will follow up, follow up with why, why kind of put uh, pushing the student to dig 
deeper into the analysis of the text through these questions. So he's uh, he's a really great example that I that I've seen. So. So one of the things that that we can all, I suspect, be doing a little bit better is looking for opportunities to uh, try to undo some of the damage that some of our students encountered during their their previous educational lives, uh, and look for opportunities to to foster that kind of that literally that childlike curiosity, right? To tap into that, to to make them genuinely engaged. Um, I in reading that chapter, I thought a lot about puzzles and about yes. sort of creating puzzles for yes. students. Absolutely. I thought a little bit about some of the work that's going on around gamification, mm-hmm. right? And that making sort of making learning akin to play in some ways. Yes. Um, so uh, the the next sort of, of principle or, or sort of feature of, of learning that you highlight for us is sociality, which I think right. I've sort of given away some of there in talking about play, but you also talk about storytelling. You talk about sort of the social aspects yes. of learning. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm particularly interested there in the implications for online learning and what mm. that may tell us about what's likely to work well and what <laughs> might work less well as right. we think about, about the increasing migration of courses to online environments. Sure. Excellent. Um, yeah. So if, uh, you know, if curiosity is kind of what drives us as individuals to learn, um, I think it is, uh, it is also uh, accurate to say then that in order to enhance that learning, we need other people. Um, we are nothing if not social creatures. In fact, we're some of the most, uh, one of the, some of the most social beings on the planet. Um, and so, uh, the learning process, a, a lot of the, the, the research on this uh, illustrates that the learning process, in order to be maximized, uh, you need another person, uh, at least one other person for, uh, for this to make sense. And a lot of that comes back to our social natures. And so certainly we can learn things as, as individuals, but we don't learn them as deeply or as well unless uh, we're learning them with and from other people. And so that's kind of the core of it, really looking at how our teaching and learning strategies and behaviors emerged from our social connections to other people. They're not just enhanced because of that, but they actually emerged from that. Um, and uh, the the connection then to social learning theories like Lev Vygotsky's Zone of Proximal Development, it's one I really like, which is very simply says that for any given concept, uh, each of us has a zone uh, uh, in which we can uh, develop knowledge by ourselves, but eventually we hit a limit and need uh, what he calls a knowledgeable other to help us move past that limit. And those zones are, you know, of different sizes for all of us, depending on the concept, the uh, the, the topic, etc. So. Um, how we uh, how we learn is really tied to the question of who are we learning with? Is it just ourselves or is it other people? Um, so that's kind of the basis of it. And then the uh, how we see that playing out in the classroom from everything from, uh, again, discussions, but also to collaborative learning is something I spend a lot of time on in that chapter because uh, – you know, one of the most vexing questions for teachers is how do we do group work well? How do we make it meaningful? How do we make it valuable? 
And I think the most instructive thing I learned from doing the research on this chapter is that uh, we cannot do group work just for the sake of doing group work. Uh, and we have to design assignments that ask students to genuinely work as a team to develop knowledge, uh, not to create assignments that allow them to divide and conquer. So if we have uh, – and students, you know, they um, – it, in order to prioritize in terms of their time and other factors, uh, we'll often do that with group assignments. They will say, okay, you take part A, I'll take part B, you take part C, we'll, and we'll come back together for the presentation. Uh, assignments like that don't actually utilize the sociality of learning. They're, it's really just an individual assignment in disguise uh, because everyone's doing their own thing and then they're, they're combining at the end. So projects and assignments that instead – uh, cannot be completed unless people are working together to develop knowledge. Like I have something, I have a bit of information that no one else has, and we have to work together to, to kind of put those things together. Um, those uh, are uh, really important ways, I think, uh, to be thinking about collaborative learning based on uh, some of these models of sociality. Um, creating, uh, creating classrooms that are that are welcoming uh, welcoming climates, uh, focusing on social belonging, which is a really important mm-hmm. social psychological concept that's uh, that's um, I would say being integrated with educational research over the last five to ten years. You can talk more about that if you like. But uh, to get to uh, online and hybrid models of of teaching and learning. Um, one thing, one obstacle uh, that on fully online courses face is the screen and the distance. Um, and so many researchers who sort of work in this um, in, at the intersection of uh, effective online learning and teaching practices and uh, the social dynamics of education have highlighted a concept they call social presence as being a predictor of success for students in online environments. And social presence uh, simply means the degree to which students actually feel and believe that they are part of a, a community, that they are interacting socially with other people in the, in the class. And, um, in those courses where they, uh, they students experience less social presence, uh, they tend to uh, they they tend to achieve at levels below what we would what we would hope for them. Uh, the more uh, the the more attention instructors pay uh, to cultivating social presence in their courses, the the higher the levels of success is at least what the research is showing right now. Which would seem to be an argument in favor of finding space for synchronous live engagement with students uh, online rather than 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 constructing a course in, in entirely asynchronous. Yeah. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. I think that is one of the. Um, you know, if you're looking at uh, low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, developing or cultivating social presence, that's one of the easiest things. Right. And, uh, you know, their institutions are trying to do that in a variety of ways. I think uh, uh, UT Austin is um, has very large enrollment uh, courses, something like a 1,000 students, 30 students actually in the classroom. The rest are watching it via video and can mm. kind of, you know, electronically raise their hands and things like that. Others are, are I think, having um, 
are, are experimenting with and having success with Google Hangouts and, and breakout rooms and things like that. But it does have to be uh, synchronous, as you're saying. Yeah. Um, so something that, at least in my mind, is is very much related is uh, the emotional aspects of learning. Can you talk mm-hmm. next a little bit about that? Sure. Yes. This was um, this is probably the chapter that's nearest and dearest to me because I think that you know fundamentally teaching uh, is driven by empathetic connections with our with our students and um, understanding them as as fellow human beings in our classrooms um, and so. Uh, you know, for a very long time, uh, and still to this day, I, I would say that uh, talking about our emotions uh, or emotions in the classroom uh, can create a, a, a little bit of a um, a wall between uh, if, between us and our colleagues because um, uh, it's not usually it's not an element that we usually talk about in terms of college teaching and. I think that stems from this very long history where emotion was seen uh, as being entirely separate from cognitive processes and, and cognition. And it's only, um, you know, last few decades that have really uh, showed us um, in great detail how emotion and cognition work hand in hand, that primed um, uh, that when we can prime students' emotions, that they are remembering information uh, in more detail, they're developing better conceptual models. Uh, and so there's a, a real emotional um, underpinning to the cognitive work that we ask students to do. Uh, but but the, the subject itself, the idea of emotion uh, and, and teaching is, is quite big. It can be everything from, uh, you know, uh, trying to find the emotional content uh, in the material we're teaching, uh, you know, uh, the, an example I use a lot is uh, comparing two biology courses, both teaching about cancer, one just teaching it at a cellular level and one uh, weaving in stories of survivors. Uh, you know, uh, the, the idea of priming students' emotions to uh, remember, that, remember that material, I think, has real basis uh, in the literature. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be anything as as necessarily dramatic as that. It can be uh, the use of humor in the classroom. It can be helping students to see the joy of the subject matter. And really, you know, I think one of the one of the primary ways that great teachers utilize emotions in the classroom all the time, in fact, is just simply uh, showing our enthusiasm about what we're teaching the, uh, and, and sharing that with students. And it's often, you know, it's often described as being contagious. And I think there's a, uh, there's a good reason for that. So it, uh, the emotional landscape uh, in, in terms of education is, is really quite broad, I think. And and some of that is is as simple as finding ways to communicate to students that you care about them, you care about their well being, you care about their learning, you care about what's going on in their lives. Uh, and does does that also have sort of demonstrable cognitive benefits other than just being a good person? It does. And uh, actually, I was surprised by how much is written about what they call pedagogical caring, a very you know caring about our students as learners and. Um, I have a whole section on the chapter about this because it is such a uh, such an important and emerging uh, emerging as a significant topic uh, for education. And um, Nell Noddings is an educational philosopher who has written quite a, a lot about this um, that uh, that can, that students respond to teachers who 
are making it clear that they care about their learning. And, and so there are, there are studies that show, uh, that are showing uh, the degree to which um, students detecting that kind of um, caring uh, center or, or caring pedagogy uh, are doing are, are learning more effectively in the classroom. Yeah, which I think, I mean, among other things, I think there are political implications to this too, right? If you think about right. sort of what can sometimes be the narrow and I would argue uninformed national dialogue about what's going on in universities and in classrooms and yes. concerns, right, that we're coddling students and all of that, what I think is silliness. Um, that, 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 that demonstration of caring is not ancillary to the project of education. It is in fact essential to it. Yes, that is absolutely right. And I think that this literature in particular, and actually end by talking about trigger warnings because it, uh, it is also a part of that national conversation, but, um, it, that, that caring is not, uh, as you said, ancillary. It is it is at the heart of uh, what we do as teachers, and that literature can be used, and I and I hope will be used in the future to push back on that narrative that we are coddling students, or that that is somehow not uh, that that the the notion that we might see students as people and 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 care about their progress in our courses is not somehow um anathema to education but it is uh it is a, it plays a central role uh which in a funny way feels to me like a perfect segue to talking about authenticity to talking ah, about right. ways in which uh <laughs> another thing that is contested among some of our colleagues the notion that what we do in the classroom might connect to the world outside the classroom Yes, yes. And uh, the, that word authenticity is kind of uh, it's bandied about a lot and means and can mean a lot of different things, I think. But the way I have uh, specifically used it in the book is uh, comes out of the research on what scientists have called cognitive authenticity uh, or situated cognition or kind of two threads there. Uh, but uh, both uh, come back to the brain's ability to detect artificial versus authentic learning environments. So what seems real to the brain? And, you know, it's, it, it's fundamentally true that our brains are very kind of ruthlessly pragmatic uh, organs. If it does, if, you know, if, uh, if we're in a learning environment, it's not immediately clear that it's relevant or important in some way. I mean, our, uh, our attentional resources, our cognitive resources will quickly get allocated elsewhere. Right. Um, and so, uh, the, the work of that chapter then is to say, okay, well, what does real mean and how can we make, how can we make our courses and our activities look, uh, be applicably uh, be applicable, be relevant, and really engage with the real work of our disciplines. And so, uh, you know, undergraduate research is a great example. How can we? Uh, but it's not the only example of, of helping students do the real work of the discipline. I think when we talk about undergraduate research, which is having you know uh, uh, a lot of popularity across the across the country right now, um, and it's amazing. But it doesn't have to be. Uh, as uh, as broad or as intensive as I think uh, a lot of people assume when we talk about undergraduate research, it can be an activity that lasts a class session or a couple of class sessions that uh, ask students to work with real data or primary sources in history or anything that's giving them the real experience of, of uh, what scholars in the discipline are doing. That 
gets right to the heart of authenticity. Experiential. There, oh, sorry. sorry, sorry. I was just going to, is, is, so is there any evidence that, 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 that sort of one-off approach, right? You've got, say, a more traditional kind of class, but there's going to be mm-hmm. one applied or experiential or more active learning component uh, during one week. Is there research that tells us whether there are likely to be carryover effects for other learning throughout the rest of that course? That's a great question. I don't know of any studies that specifically attack that question. Okay. Um, I do know that in general, the the, the outcomes have shown a, a, a positive effect of assignments like that undergraduate research writ large. Uh, but that would be interesting to take a look at, mm. actually. And um, none of the none of the I, I think of this book, in other words, really as the beginning of a conversation. None of them are the, the sole answers. And I think there's a lot more work in exactly the areas uh, that you're talking about to be done. Um, so I interrupted you. You were, gonna, you were talking about uh, experiential learning. Sure, you say a little just... because there's good in, in experiential learning and right. there's bad experiential learning, right? <laughs> like group yeah. work, right? Good group work and bad group work. <laughs> That's exactly right. And again, this is another huge umbrella um, term, experiential learning. Uh, there's so much that uh, that fits under there. Um, and you're right. It has to be carefully designed. It has to be, um, you know, designed with a, a lot of these principles that we've been talking about. Uh, and so let's take service learning as an example, you know, learning out in the community with others uh, and, and, and for others. Um, the, the, the most successful service learning modules have uh, not, it's not just uh, volunteering, it's actually implementing significant and rigorous intellectual uh, work uh, and assignments as part of, uh, or in uh, in um, not an addendum to, but in tandem with uh, mm-hmm. the the service work and in depth reflections on that work um, that uh, that come in at the end of the semester. So you can't just have students volunteering and expect them to be able to make the connections themselves to the work of the course or the overall relevance and significance of the volunteer work. There has to be intellectual components and scaffolding that gets them to that place. Um, and so the final big feature that, that you point to is, is you talk about the importance of failure in, in how it is that we have evolved to learn uh, and talk about a, a, a phrase that I've, I've, I've loved, the, the error climate in your classroom. <laughs> right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about those for us? Sure, definitely. And I've, uh, this has been a, a topic that I think a, um, a lot of folks I've been talking to recently have latched on to, the notion of failure. And so um, the, the way I discuss it in the chapter is uh, to talk about the kind of failure, errors, mistakes that we might see students making or uh, experiencing within a class session or within a class over time. Not, I, I, I'm not talking about the uh, giving students the uh, ability or the leeway to fail entire courses or, or to uh, experience failure on a kind of a, a life altering scale, right. uh, because the, there's um, there's certainly uh, a, some students who can afford to do that more than others. And that gets into kind of, uh, socioeconomic uh, kind of, and, demo- and demographic information uh, or components. So I'm not, that's not the kind of failure I'm talking, talking about more like cognitive errors and mistakes. 
which our brains are making all the time. That's one thing the research is very clear on. We are kind of <laughs> error machines. We're making them all the time uh, because uh, we're, we're uh, judging things based on um, what has happened before, not, not necessarily what, uh, what may actually be happening. But our, also, our brains also have these mechanisms for detecting error and drawing cognitive resources to the errors. So um, it's really, I think, uh, I think moving forward, the future of education is really figuring out how we can create environments where students have opportunities to fail in low or no stakes settings so they can actually experience the learning process. Yeah. I mean, as scholars, we know that we don't walk into a lab or into the library and immediately find the earth shattering, uh, you know, revelations that we were seeking. It's a long process of trial and error and, uh, and, and looping back around again through that process. And so, uh, but we often have designed environments where student, where we're asking exactly the opposite of students. We give them one shot on really high stakes uh, kinds of assessments. So uh, building in opportunities for them to actually utilize the failure components of the learning process, I think is really essential. And uh, you mentioned the error climate of our courses, the, the, the tolerance uh, of the instructor for student errors and mistakes and the degree to which we have created courses that allow for those opportunities uh, for failure, I think. And so I, this was, uh, this was a fascinating chapter to write. Uh, I mean, uh, honestly, one of the things I loved about this book was it, it just, I, I was so interested in everything I was reading, uh, the research I was reading and the failure, the stuff on failure is probably uh, at the top of that list because it was certainly not the way I was trained as a graduate student to think about the positive elements of failure. Yeah. Uh, and it's not something that I initially was very conscious of as a teacher, but um, the, the research that's happening on it, it's, um, it's, it's pretty dramatic in terms of how it can help our students both academically and psychologically, and the way those two kind of interact with each other, uh, in the end, I think is um, really a valuable thing to be thinking about in education. It, you know, it's funny because it's, it's that, that failure to respect the value of failure is something that's reflected, I think, more broadly in some of our disciplines, right? In the social sciences, there is sort of an ongoing sure. debate about uh, the difficulty in getting journals to publish null results. Right. But that's right. That's super fascinating stuff, potentially, yes, right? <laughs> um, but right? You can't get it published, which dissuades us from doing it. If we don't think we're going to come up with this exciting new finding, then there are in some ways sort of of, of self fish uh, uh, motivations for our own advancement to steer us away from things that we think might fail. Right. I agree completely. Um, so in that, in that, in that vein, you talk a little bit about this in the book and I'll confess up front, this gets onto one of my own personal hobby horses. Sure. Talk about good. the implications of all of this for grades. Ah, yes. Um, well, I mean the the long the long story short about this is that um, most of what we have learned about the the necessity of failure and errors and mistakes for the learning process really shows us that grades are antithetical to learning. It's feedback 
that enhances learning, not grades. Now there, uh, and I'll explain why in a second, but there is a way that we might see grades as a type of feedback, but most often grades are communicating the degree to which a student either does or does not live up to a, a standard. Um, and that, that runs against our natural learning process, which demands that we, uh, we make these mistakes. And so, uh, and to learn from them in order to push forward. So uh, an evaluative approach to learning then um, really uh, kind of counters uh, what we have learned about the natural process of learning. So, uh, but the problem is that almost all of us teach in context in, at institutions where we have to give grades. There are some places that don't give grades, but most of, most of the places uh, – where faculty work, they do give grades. And so uh, how, do we, how do we cultivate these environments for failure, for utilizing failure, if we have to ultimately give grades? And I think that's a very tough question to answer. I do think that uh, two things that we can do are to, to um, once we uh, build these pedagogies into our, into our repertoire, uh, to talk to students a lot about the process, about why uh, we have designed courses to allow them to, um, you know, take intellectual risks and make mistakes. Uh, the other thing that we can try is alternative models of grading, like contract grading, specifications grading, portfolio grading. Ultimately, we still have to give a grade, but those uh, those models help, I think, to divest uh, learning from grades. And so they really emphasize feedback, which again, giving, giving feedback often without grades is the best way to help our students sort of advance along uh, this learning process. Uh, you're listening to the New Books Network. I am Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we have been speaking with Josh Ayler, who Eiler, excuse me, who is the author of How Humans Learn: The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching from West Virginia University Press. And I think that if you are engaged in teaching college students, I think you should read this book, even if you have given lots of thought to your to your teaching. I think that there's a a synthesis of information here that is that we don't run across in the other. Uh, literature on pedagogy, and I know that it's. Uh, I appreciate it being part because it's it's confirmed some things that I suspected, uh, and we always enjoy those kinds of things. Uh, yes. But also because it has opened me up to sort of thinking about learning in that sort of deeper kind of way, right? That's what's going mm-hmm. on physiologically, what's going on biologically, what's going on emotionally uh, that I hadn't really, I think, given given too terribly much thought to, and I am hoping that that will uh, bear fruit fruit in future courses. Uh, So Josh, tell us what you are working on next, if you would. Sure, definitely. Um, I recently gave a talk on teaching as a creative endeavor. And that's, I think, uh, a first step in a a larger project. Not sure if it'll be a book yet, but um, on on the the creative side of teaching, how uh, uh, teaching is uh, is also an art, and there's a there are, is a lot of creative work and creative energy that goes into teaching, um, in addition to knowing these principles of, of science as well. So, kind of the other side of the teaching coin. Excellent. Uh, that was Josh Eiler, author of How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching. You have been listening to the New Books Network. Thank you, Josh, for your time today. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate it.